it's fussaging. That's what people hear. And it's published in this magazine. And I saw it on the internet there, wherever you see. And so I am so big into truth and accuracy. That's why you're better. Because if you had listened to all of the messaging that you were, you did, and then you never got well. These are why the clients I'm dealing with, they get better is because all they've had is the messages that don't work. We have to examine all the data and you have to be prepared to hear stuff that you may not like to hear. Hello and welcome to Your Great with your host, Unique Hammond. I created this podcast for those on their healing journey looking for inspiration and tools. One of the things that I learned on my own healing journey was that healing my body took healing my relationship with my body, with my emotional and spiritual body as well. And it took a lot of maturity. It took really looking at the way I'd always lived and realizing that I couldn't get different results from what I had always done. It took a lot of maturity healing my body because it took a lot of patience. and. Younger me, old me, didn't have the patience to wait for very much in life. So to have to put in a lot of effort into healing my body and a lot of times not see the results right away was really difficult and took a lot of maturity. So if you are on your healing path and it is hard for you to stay the course, just know that that's normal to feel that way and that you've got this and just keep going because your body wants to heal and your body is amazing and you're amazing and you are worth creating the best health possible for yourself. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's episode is with Karen Hurd. I hope you enjoy it and we are doing a Q&A session. Karen, welcome back. Thank you for being here today to answer all these questions. You're welcome. We're going to start off with the one I get so, actually, I get a lot often. I have people coming to me with very low HDL. The rest of their cholesterol is low as well, so they're not having high LDL necessarily, but they're unique. How do we raise these HDLs? I say eat more healthy fats, but what are your thoughts on how somebody can really bring those levels up? Okay. You actually have to make a uh, concentrated effort to be eating things. When we say healthy fats, we're talking about your good oils. So that's olive oil. The peanut oils, if you don't have a peanut allergy, we also have the avocado oils. Those are more expensive. And then you have, those are the oils. Anything that's that's liquid at room temperature is an okay oil. There's lots of different oils out there. And then there's the foods that have the oil in them. You can actually eat the avocado. You can eat the nuts. You can eat the nut butters like almond butter and cashew butter. And so all of those are good oil sources. If you're eating a lot of saturated fats, so, so there's, there's the things to do. Eat the good oils. And you have to eat them away from your beans because you eat them with beans and they're going to do a lot of good things for your bowels. That's good. It's helpful. But that's not going to get that good oil into your bloodstream where it can promote the formation of HDL. Now, on the opposite side, if you're eating a lot of saturated fat, you love your cheese, you love your butter, you love your shortening, you're a coconut oil consumer, and you love all those saturated fats, then you are negating all the good fats that you're putting in there. So we're undoing our good fat work as fast as you're putting in the bad fats. So there's a rhetoric in the health world that seed oils are rancid and they have too much omega-6 in them, which is inflammatory. What are your thoughts around that? They don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it's nice. What they have is, what you do is you have people that have a little bit of information. I run into this always. You have a little bit of information and you haven't looked at the entire breadth of the field. So if you will look up polyunsaturated fats, they're called PUFAs, okay? P-U-F-A, PUFAs, we say, that stands for polyunsaturated fatty acids. And those are all your omega-6 oils and that they are some demonized, awful thing because they increase inflammation. Actually, they don't. Anything that has those double bonds, we're good on. But if you look up in the scientific literature, just put in, you know, polyunsaturated, just put PUFA, it'll come up. And when I say look up in the scientific literature, you need to go on to something like Google Scholar, not just just a general search. Go to Google Scholar 
And then you type in your parameters, you know, benefits of the PUFA or detriments or whatever you're looking for. You're going to be so overwhelmed with a huge amount of benefits of the polyunsaturated fatty acids that it's that it, it's going to displace all this. Well, they're rancid. And then you have to use a little common sense here too. When an oil is rancid, you will be able to tell it immediately. One, your nose will alert you. You say, well, I have a stuffed up nose. I can't smell for whatever reason. When you put a rancid oil in your mouth, it tastes rancid. I, everybody should have at some point in their life had a rancid oil. And you're eating some nuts that have been in the closet, you know, the pantry for 10 years. And you open up and go, Woo, what's that sort of nasty smell? It's not a rotting meat smell. It's a rancid oil smell. It has its, its unique properties of the way it smells. And you go, hmm, I wonder if I should eat these. Well, I don't know. And then you eat them. It's like, well, they don't taste bad, but they taste sort of wrong. Yeah, you're eating a rancid fat. And so rancid fats come from the process of oxidation. And so the more something is oxidized and the more they become rancid, well, it takes years to oxidize fats. Years, literally. I mean, they do have to sit in your camp. And that's why they have expiration dates on them, you know, if best used by this date, because they will become rancid because fats just normally oxidized. So you will know it before you eat it. So to say, oh, all of this oil or whatever is, it's rancid. Well, you soon take the cap off. You can smell it. And you'll say, no, it's not rancid. It's fine. It's a great point because I've had rancid nuts before and it's in my mouth and I can't figure out which one is rancid. So I'll just spit them all out because I'm like, ooh, <laughs> like so gross. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So when they were processing the nuts, you know, they're running down a little conveyor belt. You know, you got one that was stuck from six months ago that did all of a sudden made it in with the good ones, you know? So yeah. And anything, the thing we have to remember in chemistry, it's really important to remember chemistry. If we have double bonds between those carbon atoms and a long fatty acid chain, whether it is 15 or 18 or 21, if you have a double bond anywhere in there, then you have a oil that can be made into an anti-inflammatory, made into a hormone. It can play. It means it can go into other chemical reactions. If all you eat are saturated fats, then what we're going to have to do with that fat is we have to convert it into an unsaturated fat. And then that goes through what's called a beta oxidation cycle, which causes two different steps. It's, a, it's a, usually a six-step process. will cause all kinds of free radicals to be made. And those free radicals are what damage our DNA. So people aren't looking at what we're looking for is, please just give me a double bond. Give me a double bond. And our saturated fats don't have double bonds. So they, they have to go through that beta oxidation cycle. And it's interesting because people defend saturated fats and demonize the polyunsaturated fats. And what you're saying is it's actually the opposite. We get some saturated fats even in our lean protein, but generally speaking, you don't want to be loading up on saturated fats, even if they have a lot of nutrients. I think the, the paleo world has kind of hung its hat on drink cream and butter and because they have all of these fat-soluble nutrients in it. What are, do the fat-soluble nutrients outweigh the the potential risk of the the inflammatory condition. No, not at all. And, and that's a great way to raise your LDL, your bad cholesterol, so you eat all that saturated fat. No, because other fats carry that too. You want to have all the fat-soluble nutrients. You want the vitamin A. You want the vitamin E. Those are also in the unsaturated fats. I mean, you want good A and E. Well, then go ahead and eat the nuts. Nuts are loaded with those same wonderful nutrients. So why do we have to eat a bad fat? To get that, I mean, and so what What it is, it's messaging. It's, you know, because so many times we're so brainwashed into somewhere, we put our fingers in the ears and say, not listening, not listening. And so you don't listen. And so I'm listening. I want to hear everything. I want to hear the things that go against what I say, things that maybe I never thought about. I got to hear it all because that's how, when you can gather the information, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all as far as biochemistry. Let me show you how that doesn't make sense, okay? And it's like, oh yeah, you're right. That doesn't make sense, you know? And so we have to have this robust scientific discussion to see what is out there instead of these just, you know, people just throwing out information without any cross-referencing, without bringing in more sources. Do you feel like it's basic information that you learn in school that you should be able to apply and that's why everybody is or that it's not because why are so many people influenced by one you know person 
pulling out a piece of information and expanding on it. For example, coconut, everybody's like, oh, the lauric acid, I believe it is. It's so beneficial. So you should eat all of this or the, what is it? That's the other oil that they're saying, the, the medium chain fatty acid, like it's so good for you. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the problem is, I mean, it depends on how you're influenced. First of all, it is in our schooling. You know, we come through a very traditional education, most of us, and they, the people that are teaching nutrition, and most of all, you get very little nutrition in school anyway, but you get these pieces. I mean, I substitute teach for the Fall Creek school system here, and I see different things that, you know, that they're putting out, and I, and I actually have substituted for the health class over there. I substitute for all the grades and all the different classes, but I substitute for the health class. It's like, some of the information that we're putting out here is not quite accurate, but it is what's coming down from, you know, the powers that be that are, that are making up the curriculum. And so that has to be challenged. And so we need people in those jobs. Well, how are we going to get them in the jobs? Well, you got, you got to be a part of, I mean, if you want to be a part of, you know, you, oh, there's this expression, you probably have heard it before. You can't fight City Hall but you can become part of city hall and then you can make changes. And so you become part of the established medical society and then you are able to help bring them along. That's what I've done. When I first started practicing here in the area that I am, they were like, oh, hiss, this is just going to be this wild-eyed, crazy nutritionist saying, don't take your medications, don't work with doctors, go live on some outback in the, on a farm with an outhouse. And, no, 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 no. It's like, I agree, interested in what your doctor has to say. Make sure you stay on your medications, talk to your doctor about this, but let's start to change the way you eat and the way you're thinking about food. And so now, over the course of the 26 years that I've been practicing in this area, I am very revered. And all the doctors... Physicians, MDs, are sending people to me because I'm on their team. We're working on this together. We're a team. You know, they're all applying our knowledge because we need each other. So it's not this, it's either my way or the highway. It's just like, how do we work together? Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, we, we like to polarize ourselves into these camps. It's just like, no, 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 no. Take a, Because the MDs have a lot of good research and information. And so do the chiropractors and the naturopaths and, you know, the acupuncturist, you know, bringing in all these complementary alternative care. And so that we work together. And so really one of the pushes that I've had for years and been working and lobbying for years in, in our state is to have a team. When you go into the hospital, not to you just have your MD, but you also have a nutritionist and you also have your naturopath and you, you have a team of all these complementary alternative care people. And together you look at the case and say, yeah, but, you know, we could do this. But we haven't got there yet. We have got there. Change is coming. We just keep working at it. And I know you're avidly working on the change yourself by, you know, running for a seat locally. And so you can be a part of the change. And you're back getting your master's in public health, right? I'm two-thirds of the way through the program with that. And I'll finish that even if I get elected to state legislator, which that'll, that'll be determined in November. I just won the primary. We just held that this week. But yes, and that the reason I want to be, because I want to be a part of getting things to change. And so I will be asking the speaker, you get assigned a committee. I'd like to be on the health committee. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be on a couple other committees too, but it's one of the ones I want to be on the health committee because I want to bring in the knowledge because if I'm on that committee, certainly I could attend a hearing at the committees and I will, I, you know, on committees that I'm not a part of, I'll attend hearings and say, hey, I want to put a testimony in. But if I'm actually on the committee, then I can have an office and a legislator. I have staff that I can say, we need to research this. Staff, this is what I want you to do. You know, they're saying this and this about this particular whatever the issue is in health. We need to go some of these sources and these sources, and we need to bring in and gather up all the data so there's no knee-jerk reactions at the legislative level, and that we have examined this thoroughly. We have brought in and asked people to come in and give testimony at the hearing that are experts in these areas. And and yes, then good change can be made. Yes. And and bravo to that, because there's, I think, a lot of misinformation in the health world that's being bandied about. So this will be... Oh, I hear it all the time. <laughs> I hear it all the time. <laughs> and I got some tough decisions in Madison as we go forward, because, I mean, some people, they don't hear the other side and they don't understand. So, yeah, yeah that's okay. So to wrap up the HDL, putting in a concentrated effort to get all of your healthy fats 
and away from your beans so the beans don't bind up any of your healthy fats and really put in some time to bring those levels up. And that's the way you're going to do it. Is there anybody who, genetically speaking, just can't raise that number or genetically has a lower number? Like I know some people have genetically high cholesterol. Has that? Have you ever seen that? Or should somebody work, if they're in their 40s on HDL, should they be working, you know, with intention to bring that up? There's what I have continually heard, you know, from clients. My doctor says that this is a genetic problem. You know, it's because your family has this. And so you will always have this. And I say, well, okay, I accept that. You know, this is what their doctor said. I don't argue that with them. I just say, you know, let's eat differently. First of all, let's put some soluble fiber in your life so we can lower the LDL, okay? So that we start throwing away some of these bad fats. And that's that's actually what happens is that bile is made out of, it's made out of triacylglycerols. But most people don't understand that an LDL is a triacylglycerol. It just has an apple double protein shell. So it's just like a big, you know, center core of that bad fat. And then we have, and so that's what we're making bile out of that. If you eat beans, soluble fiber very specifically, then you start to throw that away. Your LDL will come down then. And then now your HDL is a transport system. We have to be able to carry these fat molecules to the liver to be able to be processed in the liver. And so the HDL is like little carriers. It's the bouncer in the bar. You know, if the drunks or the LDLs, we got to get the bad drunks kicked out the door. Who's the bouncer? Well, the bouncer's kicking them out the door is the HDL molecule. So... Those that have come to me and said that they're genetically prone to having, you know, this is not going to be solved. I say, okay, I don't even argue with them. I just say, well, then I should eat differently. Let's eat our soluble fiber. Let's eat our good oils and let's just see what happens. And across the board, all of them. If they're compliant, if they're not compliant, there's something I could do about that. If they're compliant, all of a sudden their cholesterol is great and the genetics didn't have anything to do with it. And I don't go back and rub their nose in and say, you see, genetics really don't have anything to do with it. But I have not seen any genetic, it, when you study genetics, the DNA, it's, it's not one set of one gene that is calling into the circumstance that you're going to have an, an LDL problem that's too high or an HDL that's too low, that one gene is controlling that. We have come to discover that it is multiple genes that will control that. And in each gene, you have to remember there's epigenetic factors. Genes can be turned on and off by epigenetic factors. What's an epigenetic factor? It's something that has nothing to do with genetics. It's do you smoke cigarettes? You breathe perfume. You eat sugar. You're always doing caffeine. You're under high stress. You know, there are so many you're breathing polluted air. There's a lot of things. You're taking supplements. All of these things change the expression of your gene because there's a gene and that's called your genotype, okay? And then it is expressed in your phenotype. A phenotype is, okay, well, this is what the gene says, but when we put together those proteins to be able to, we have to, there's a messenger RNA that puts together the proteins and then makes the molecule, whatever we're trying to make, whether it's an enzyme or catalyst or whatever. And so, it may turn out a little bit differently than what the gene said because of these epigenetic factors. So you can turn genes on. It's easier to say you could turn them off. It's a little bit of a simplification, but it's easy enough to understand that then. So we can turn the gene off for bad cholesterol by just well, eating right. And so we can just call it turning the gene off. So people, <laughs> okay, I have the BRCA gene, you know, that's the for breast cancer and I so I have had cut both breasts off and I have my uterus removed and and bloping tubes and ovaries and everything's gone. It's just like just because you have a gene doesn't mean it's going to occur that way. So you can turn things off and turn things on. Would you say most people are trustworthy with their gene to take care of their gene? But I think we need to do a whole episode on genetics and what could trigger a genetic, you know, what in your lifestyle could be triggering? Sure, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that's a whole. You gotta understand. I gotta explain to you about codons, and there's a lot I haven't even touched on. Yeah, love. Let's absolutely do a whole genetic one because I am so fascinated by how just how it all works. Okay, so let's go on to the next question. So let's go ahead and talk about H. pylori. A lot of people are having this H. pylori infection. I just want you to talk this one through because I was told when I was tested for everything that I had H. pylori and I needed to take all these antibiotics, but I had started working with you 
and was like, no more antibiotics. I had done a lot of antibiotics before I got to you because they were exploratory to find out if I had an infection, which it wasn't an infection. It was Crohn's, but they were really wanting to go after H. pylori. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts around H. pylori? What, what is happening is, is because we're trying to find a cause of somebody's discomfort. And so it's like, well, you have elevated H. pylori bacteria, and so that must be the cause. And so then we'll treat it with antibiotics. H. pylori can be very serious if you have, a, if it's a runaway. I mean, it's a bacteria that's going to cause a lot of diarrhea and distress, and, you know, it's very serious. But we have in our gut all kinds of bacteria, including H. pylori. It resides there at all times. You have some right now on your gut. I have some right now in my gut. We have all kinds of bad bacteria. But we also have good bacteria, and it's like it's like a field, and it's if you if you wipe it clean with an antibiotic, and so it's a field that is nothing planted. Then what occurs is something's going to grow there eventually, and usually it's weeds. You're not going to just have the the crop of corn or soybeans or wheat or whatever you're trying to raise. It's just going to just grow up. No, it's the weeds are going to grow, and the weeds you can. Con- Compare that to the bad bacteria in a person's gut. So when a person is on antibiotics and you wipe out the intestinal gut of all of the bacteria, then the most probable thing that is going to grow and take over are the weeds. And H. pylori is one of the weeds. Sometimes, so it doesn't happen like that. Normally, it doesn't happen like that. You will have good bacteria grow too. And how do you get good bacteria? Actually, you eat fermented foods, you know, like the sauerkraut. And there's different, you know, we have our, what we call our fermented foods. But you can take a probiotic. That's easy enough to do. You don't even have to take it with a prebiotic. If you're eating beans, beans, the best prebiotic we have. But you take a probiotic and you only have to do that for the day that you finish your antibiotic. And for two weeks, because then your gut flora is established. If you take a probiotic and you haven't been taking an antibiotic, you don't have H. pylori. You're just trying to do good gut health. Because that is another thing that's being promoted in the natural health world, that everybody should be on probiotics all the time. No, because you see these all the bacteria the good and bad. Your good ones, you'll know if you had good or bad ones. If you have, if you're taken over by bad ones, you're going to probably have some diarrhea. You're not, it's not some mystery, but if you have good gut health, you're going to have good gut bacteria that are, that are residing in that large colon. And some of them go into the small colon, but most of the large colon. Anyway, so these bacteria multiply exponentially. That's one of the, the characteristics of bacteria. They don't, you know, well, every three or four days, we might get another one of these good bacteria. No, you're, this is, we're talking about milliseconds. It's exponential. So in a very short time, your gut will have filled up with all the bacteria that it can hold because there's only so much food and there's only so much space. There's not like this, it's like the hotel is full. And so then if you keep dumping in more bacteria, even if it's good bacteria, what's happening there is not, there's a fight over who's going to get the room, like move over. I'm, I'm moving in. I'm a good bacteria. I'm a good bacteria too. Well, there's two of us here and I want your space and I want your food because they all have to have something to eat. Okay. And so now you're eating all the food and you're taking up all the space and then there's a fight between the bacteria and what happens with both of them? The both good guys, they die because there's not enough resources to support all of the bacteria. So what you have is a constant sloughing off of bacteria. People always say, well, you know, when I take pro- probiotics and that gives me better stools, I used to be constipated until I took probiotics. Well, you understand why you're not that? It's because you're sloughing off huge amounts of diarrhea or, or bacteria, and that's creating a looser stool. Is that really the way you want to do it? So you're constantly killing off your gut floor because you put in too much? It's like overplanting a field. Any of your farmers, anybody that's got a garden, I want you to take your little package of carrot seeds, you know, when you put them out in the garden. And instead of spreading them out, they're little teeny tiny seeds. Instead of spreading them out all the way down the road, you know, sprinkle them very sparse. You just dump them all in one little place. How many carrots are you going to get out of that? None. Because you have it in, there's not enough soil, not enough nutrients. You've got too much and too small space. You get nothing. You get nothing. And so that's what we do. We're constantly taking probiotics. The only time to take a probiotic is if you've been on an antibiotic and you take it the first the the, the first time, the first day that you're not taking the antibiotic. Otherwise, if you say, well, I'm going to take it while I'm taking the antibiotic. Sure, throw your money away because as soon as it enters the gut, it's going to die. 
because you're on an antibiotic that'll kill it. So if a person is eating a high sugar diet, high alcohol, which I understand alcohol kills off the gut biome as well, and then sugar and processed foods, would they be a candidate for somebody who should be on a probiotic if they have a really poor diet? Would they, and they're not eating foods that are feeding their microbiome? No, not necessarily. I mean, you, you actually have to have some symptoms. Are they having diarrhea? And then if you're having diarrhea, you don't necessarily want to do a probiotic. It's just like, why are we having a diarrhea? Is it really because you have H. pylori? Well, that's a simple enough test. You can, you can see. Is it because you have an overgrowth of this bad bacteria? Not necessarily because the sugar, just so you know, sugar is also a prebiotic. It feeds the bacteria, good and bad. So we can't just say, you know, all of the things that we're saying that are bad are actually nutrients for these bacteria too, good and bad. I have never seen anybody have an H. pylori infection, infection unless they have had some type of intervention, you know, that they've been on antibiotics because of their acne or their you know, they or their sinus issues or whatever. And so then they're going to be more prone to that. Because it's opportunistic. So if somebody does have an H. pylori infection and they come to you and they go, my doctor says I should take antibiotics. Do I have to take antibiotics? Can I bring it back into balance naturally with my other fungus and bacteria that I have in my body? What would you say? It would depend on the severity of their symptoms. Okay. If they are, I mean, if they are ill, I mean, the H. pylori can make you severely ill. It's just like, we don't need you to die while we're working on the other alternative solution. By all means, take this so that we can kill the H. pylori as soon as you finish your course. And it depends on what your doctor prescribes. Sometimes it's 10 days, sometimes it's two weeks, sometimes it's longer, whatever the course is. And they say, okay, now that is done. Then immediately start with your probiotic and then. In the in-between, we're going to start getting you because was this caused because you didn't get rid of enough of your bile, which is toxic, which we talked about a long time ago. So, you know, and is that really the cause of it? And, you know, we found that the H. pylori might be elevated, but is that really the cause of your, your gastrointestinal distress? Maybe or maybe not. Look at your situation, Unique. They've told you it was H. pylori. They did a test to find that out. That wasn't a guess. They tested it. But it wasn't H. pylori that was causing all your problems. Well, it so, was probably all the antibiotics that I took in search of, because I wasn't showing any autoimmune markers until they did the colonoscopy and did the, did the sample that they saw that it was, they diagnosed Crohn's. But before that, because my C-reactive proteins weren't through the roof, it was like, well, there's got to be an infection somewhere because of the fact that I was rapidly dropping weight and having blood in the stool. So they were like, let's do an exploratory round of you know, antibiotics. And it was after the antibiotics that the H. pylori popped up, but also that I just got worse. I didn't, I didn't get better. I got worse. So yeah. Okay. That's great to know. And then the other one is even highly educated doctors in on Instagram from wonderful medical schools are saying poops that float are bad for you. That means you're not digesting fats. Speak to that. Yeah. It's great to have stool that floats. It means that you have enough fat. It doesn't mean you're not absorbing fats, but there is sufficient bile because you have to remember bile is a fat too. Mm -hmm. So when you're going to put bile into your stool, fat floats on water because it's, it's less dense than water. So it's going to float. So that is a nice indication that you're getting rid of some nice bile. So do we, we cannot just across the board say if your stools float you're not absorbing fat well baloney to that you can be absorbing all kinds of that and you're excreting the bile like you're supposed to it's found in soluble fiber you mix soluble fiber with that and then you see have you ever tried to mix soluble fiber in water have you ever noticed that you notice how it flows it is very hard to get it to mix them you know it wants to bind with fat is what it wants to bind with it doesn't it's admissible i mean it will mix with water but it's very hard it wants to bind with the fat. That's its preference. And so that's, that's the issue. We, we see, again, we're making these blanket statements without even looking at the construct of bile. So we guess we should never throw away bile then because it might make your stools float. If you don't throw away bile, you're looking cancer hard and fast in the face. Please don't misunderstand this. Don't say, oh, if my stools don't float, I'm going to look at cancer hard, fast in the face. No, please don't take this out of context. <laughs> I'm yeah, just trying to say that in okay to have floating stools we're getting rid of bile 
But nobody's stool floats all the time. So if you're trying to have a floating stool all the time, just know that it's okay that it doesn't float all the yes. time. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I, yeah. I do have clients who worry about that too. But unique, it should float. And I'm like, nobody's floats all the time. Nobody's is a perfect log all the time. Everything is constantly moving and grooving. And um, this whole yeah. idea of what you ate depends on the stress that you're under, depends on the hormones. What time of the cycle is it? What time of the month is it in your menstrual cycle? You know, did you, were you exposed to perfumes? Were you out, you know, in the heat in the sun? Were you dehydrated? Did you get enough water? I mean, there's so many issues. It's just like, don't worry about it. But just yeah. eat right and forget looking at your stool, whether it floats or not. Just forget about it. Yeah, it's like pay attention. You'll know if something's wrong, but don't walk around with that Bristol poop chart thinking that that's the end all be all because it's not. It's just, yeah. you know, common not so common sense. But let's talk about, I got the question about stomach ulcers. Can it be healed naturally or do we need to go on medication for it? Oh, they definitely can be healed naturally. Our gastrointestinal tract heals very, very rapidly, but you have to stop the acid. And we're always attributing it to the acids that are produced as hydrochloric acid that's produced in the stomach. It is some in other areas too, but mostly in the stomach area. And we're blaming it on that. I'm not ready to just sign off on that's the cause. I think it's regurgitating bile coming through that. There is a sphincter that's separating the duodenum from the stomach. And so it's coming through that little sphincter. And so that adds acid because bile is acidic, period. Bile is acidic. And so then that can create that acid, can burn a little hole and, you know, make a sore. Just remove that. How you remove that? You eat your soluble fiber. Please don't eat acid. Eat booze. Don't eat tomatoes. Don't put cayenne pepper on things. Don't eat the banana hot peppers. I mean, that's really dumb. You know, those are highly acidic. When you got something that's hot, just know it's highly acidic. Okay. And so you stay away from the stuff that you know that's highly acidic and then you throw the bile out and then you, it actually will heal very quickly if you don't change the way you eat. Well, some people have it. Based on their diet choices, and then some people have it because they're just popping Advil like Tic Tacs, and so they're well. Yeah, we have medications. That, you know, we'll chew away at you know our NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. This is well known. It is well documented throughout all the research. We know that it can cause gut problems, and so it's like okay. So you'll say, but I have to take it. I'm in pain. I get that. Well, how about we change your diet so you don't have the cause of the pain anymore? Let's correct the cause instead of taking symptom relievers. We're back to. Yeah, we're back to <laughs> create a healthy environment for a healthy body to function. And the body wants to heal. It is constantly healing. So if we give it the proper nutrients, we can have this incredible human body for what appears to be a very long time. So Hashimoto's, a lot of pushback about iodine. That's a very controversial topic. Hashimoto's being an autoimmune disorder and inflammatory. What are, let's talk about that. Why, why is it such a controversial topic to take iodine when you have a Hashimoto's? I don't think it's controversial at all. You should be taking iodine. And I don't think you should be taking a supplement. Just use your iodized salt. Because when you take iodine, the Lugol's or whatever brand or whatever, you don't really know iodine is poisonous if you get too much. So it shouldn't be just taken just as you think. Just, I mean, it's very, if you just salt your food with iodized salt, you're going to have plenty of iodine. We have to have iodine for the health of the thyroid. It's absolutely necessary. The Hashimoto's thing is when you have these antibodies that are elevated, and so that indicates that your thyroid tissue is inflamed. Now, is that autoimmune or not? I discussed that in huge detail on my thyroid force. So I'm not, I mean, this would take us an hour to go into autoimmune and all the rest of it. It means that there's some irritation that's causing the inflammation. Whether it's the immune system or not, I have a lot of questions and, and answers actually on that one. I don't think so. It's because of the way we do things. When you eat sugar, People, if you have a thyroid, if you have Hashimoto's or you have a large thyroid, you know, and you just eat sugar and just pay attention to what it feels like right there where your thyroid is right here in your throat, you know, in your neck. And just feel it. You're going to feel it. Sugar causes inflammation because bad of crime. And so if you would just please not eat sugar. And then we do other things that purposely are breathe perfumes. I mean, when I breathe perfumes, I mean, I can feel the, I mean, my lip glands will swell five, 10 times. As, I mean, and I eat a good diet, but it's just like, oh my goodness, all these people just gave me a hug and they're coming with perfume. That happened this week because they're all so excited because I won the primary and I'm with a lot of people there. All these ladies hugging me. So, oh my goodness, I gotta go up and check 12 a day and start getting stuff off of me. My lip glands are swelling, you know, and that will also cause your thyroid, you know, problems too. And so we are looking at other issues that are causing inflammation. And it's just basically a, not a healthy lifestyle eating 
And in Wallace White style, you're wearing perfumes, fragrances, or you're smoking or whatever you're doing. And that is going to create inflammation somewhere. We cannot say that I can do these things and get away scot-free. There will be a chemical reaction. You will have inflammation. And then you have antibodies that are going to go try and fight the inflammation. Does that mean that your immune system caused the inflammation? No, it doesn't. There's something else that caused the inflammation, but your immune system is reacting to try to bring it down. And so then we blame the immune system because the antibodies are up. It's not the immune system causing it. So what about the caking materials in iodized salt? What are your thoughts? Is, is that not a problem? It's not a problem. Okay. It's, they're not harmful. They're not going to do any okay. kind of Okay. Okay, wonderful. Because I get a lot of questions about that. So you're saying the safest form, how do you feel about seaweed as a form of iodine? Okay, cool. Okay, I get a lot of questions about the HPV virus along with herpes and canker sores. Uh, would you put those all in the same category as immune system issues? Your immune system issues, not autoimmune. They're immune system issues. Yes. This is a real virus. We have to understand that viruses do not go away. Once you're exposed to Epstein-Barr, once you're exposed to HIV, you know, the herpes virus that causes fever blisters or genital warts or whatever it is, you have that forever. It will never leave your body. These are things that hide out in the cytosol, that's a, the insides of cells. It's in the cytosol. It's just, and hang out there. And then when your immune system is suppressed, it's going to commandeer the cell machinery so it can reproduce itself and eject themselves out of the, the cell and then go make troubles and break out in a fever blister or whatever it is. This is an immune system. Your immune system isn't strong enough to be able to keep it under wraps. Just think of all these little viral particles. They're in prison. And when the prison guard and the door is not locked, it's just closed and there's a guard in front of the door. And when the prison guard turns his back or runs over here to take care of another situation, then they can sneak out and they escape the prison and they cause a sore or they cause a breakout or they cause the Epstein-Barr. You're back in the full, you know, they call it myonucleosis is Epstein-Barr, same thing. And, you know, then you're in, a, in an attack again. And all you have to do is have a strong immune system and keep the guard standing by the door. Keep those guys locked up. Manage the stress, keep the sugar and alcohol out, and eat the protein so that you can feed the thymus. Little nursery. Yes. Okay, so then let's talk about women are asking about safe. Is there such a thing as a safe lubricant for women? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You could use petroleum jelly. There's KY jelly. All of them. And you're not worried about the, like, the fact that it's a... No. Tell us why. No. Because... You're not looking at fats that way can absorb. You say, well, I'm going to absorb those fats into my bloodstream. That's pretty difficult to do. That's really difficult to do. They have to have certain things that will break them down. These are long fatty acid chains. And to be able to absorb, they have to be broken into smaller ones. And we don't have a digestive enzyme in the vagina or wherever you're using this lubricant. We don't have the digestive enzymes there to break those fats down into small fatty acid particles so they can be absorbed. No, all of that will just be excreted. I mean, it'll all just eventually wash out. Will it not mess with the, the, the microbiome in there at all? No. Okay. Talk about Lyme disease. I know you cover it in your course as well, but what is your take on Lyme? But you have to have an immune system. Lyme is a spirochete. It's a bacteria. It's not a virus. And you can get rid of it. It's not going to live in your body in the soft tissues forever and ever. Amen. You can eradicate it, but you're going to have to have an immune system that'll ferret it out and send it, it's on its way. And everybody that's ever come to me with Lyme, they all heal, given their compliance. Even had a chiropractor from up north of Wisconsin come down to see me. He'd been struggling with, he's been treating clients for Lyme's with supplements and all kinds of treatments for years and years. And he had Lyme's and he couldn't get rid of his either. And so he came to me and I said, the problem is you don't have a strong enough immune system. Change the way he ate. Guess what? He got rid of Lyme's. It's all gone. And now he's telling all of his his patients, this is the way to do it. I was wrong telling you to do supplements and all this stuff. This is not the way to do it. You got to do it. You got to build your immune system. It's just an, another infection that we'll get over. How long, if somebody comes with a really beaten down immune system, would you, would you say it can take up to a year for them to 18 get, to 24 months? 18 to 24 months. Yeah. And so that's, that's they got to be in this for the long haul. If you say, well, I could only do this for three months, they have to do it longer than three months. Okay. You've been down with this stuff for 10 years or whatever. Don't don't expect to get over this in three months. We've got a lot of work to do. Wonderful. And then if somebody is born with low white blood cells, 
Is that something that, and they get tested every year and they always have white, low white blood cells. Is that something that with proper diet they could raise? And raise it. And we have to go back and we have to look at the cause. I mean, there are some stem cell problems. White blood cells come from stem cells. Stem cells are like these cells that can be, that will make many children of different kinds. Red blood cells, white blood cells, we have, stem cells can do a lot. So don't know. I'd have to go back and look at the individuals. You know, if they're born with white blood cells. They may indeed, you know, I talked about genetics and epigenetics, but there are some, some congenital problems that are permanent that epigenetics is not going to. I mean, if you were born with Down syndrome, I'm sorry, we cannot reverse Down syndrome. You know, trisomy, you know, that's a that more genetic material than you're supposed to have. There can be some real serious deletions of DNA or additions of DNA in the birth. And so that has to be looked at. Okay. I have a client who's been on the gallbladder program for a couple of years. They still have stones, but no symptoms. Do they still need to be eating beans three times times a day if they have stones? So they don't need to up their amount to try to get rid of the stones if they don't have symptoms. Nope. Nope. Just three times a day. And then they have to wash their fats. They don't overboard on fats because but the stones will eventually dissolve. They get to be very, very hard, very hard, like plastic hard. Mm. But they've been there for years because they have oxidized to this point where they are just are really just hard little bits. But so they're not bothering you. I mean, and they haven't bothered you for ages. But then if you start to get twinges on that upper right quadrant, then you know, okay, let's get the beans up and let's just cut back on the worms a little bit more. Okay, so if you don't have symptoms and you're having achy joints, it's okay to bring back in the fats as long as you're keeping it below a threshold that you're not activating the limber, the gallbladder. Exactly. Okay, wonderful. Can a person eat too much fiber? Yeah, you can eat too much of anything. (laughs) If you eat eat too much fiber, yeah, you might be in the bathroom for, you know, because all fiber is excreted. You could have bowel movements that stop up the toilet. I mean, you should never, none of us should overeat. I mean, you, but the question is, no, you can't eat too much fiber. Okay. Because you're going to stop eating or you, you can't hold that much food. You'll just right. literally be like, I am stopped. Right. And you'll feel it. You feel that. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, you're not going to overeat fiber. Botox. Can Botox, I mean, this might come up in our genetic, like as far as triggering genetics, epigenetic, you know, the choices we make in our lifestyle. I live in LA. I do not do Botox or fillers, but I am surrounded by it. And I'm always curious, A, what are your thoughts on it? And B, can it be an epigenetic trigger? Absolutely. It's an epigenetic trigger. Okay. And so what it is, is people are desperate to whatever they're using it for. I mean, it's used for an incredibly large number of things. It is a poison, period. It's a poison. And so we're using those things to relieve symptoms. And so it's just better to address the cause. Let's address the cause. Right. But if if it's strictly cosmetic, wants to look younger, is it playing a game of Russian roulette that it's not going to trigger some bigger problem? It is a game of Russian roulette. It's like, okay, what are you willing to pay in the end? Is it worth the cancer? Is it worth the, you know... The rapid aging will, will, I know if you're using it for anti-aging, but you're going to find out because it's going to backfire. And then what about the hyaluronic fillers that everybody is doing? What are your thoughts on that? It's the same thing. I mean, that's something that we make in the body quite easily. So why are we doing extra? It's again, we're always trying to find some magic bullet, some magic little pill that I can swallow because it would be a whole lot easier just to swallow this pill than to eat like unique and care and eat, you know, oh, they don't have any sugar. They don't have caffeine. You know, they're eating these beans. They're eating good oils, you know, and it's just like, but I just want to have this. It's just the same thing. We get out of balance. You get out of balance. You cannot just put chemicals in the body and think that it's not going to create some long-term damage. Yeah, that game of Russian roulette, I, you know, what I say to people who are choosing to eat sugar and and drink alcohol and, you know, I occasionally will have some alcohol here and there, but very, very occasionally. And I'm like, you know, what I was doing before this protocol was playing a game of Russian roulette with my health. But because I wasn't sitting at a table in Vegas, I, I wasn't aware of it. But the more we look at genetics and epigenetics and the role our lifestyle plays in pulling these triggers, my own included, I can look and go, oh, yeah. I can take responsibility for the fact that I was pulling these genetic factor in, by making 
but just not even considering my choice. I was gambling without knowing it. And my goal is to put forth this kind of truth and information so people can actually at least be honest with themselves that they're playing a game of Russian roulette. Should they choose to? That's an individual choice, right? But yeah, if they choose to, that's up to them. That is yeah. their, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. Let's see. Can one improve their health even with having rheumatoid arthritis and cancer? Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. That's great. And then fibroids. Uterine fibroids, breast mm-hmm. fibroids. Mm-hmm. Both. All of those. I, mean, I just got a letter from somebody. I get emails all the time. I said, yes, you were the one who helped me. I had a five centimeter fibroid. That's pretty big. Okay. Mm-hmm. You look at five centimeters. That's pretty big. It's just gone. Doctors can't believe it. It takes time. You're not going to dissolve a fibroid overnight and not in three months, but you're going to have to do it over the course of 18, 24 months. Stay with it. You can see all kinds of things, wonderful things happen. Somebody wanted to know, how do you indulge? How do I indulge? <laughs> well, it's not with food. You see, you're asking, it's, food becomes, see, food is not important to me. And so if I indulge, it's just like, I want to watch the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I've seen a lot, but I want to watch the Lord of the Rings. Or I want to sit down and play. I have a piano here in my office. I want to go sit and I'm just going to play the piano and indulge myself those few minutes and indulge and play the piano. Or that's, those are really, watch a good movie or read a good book. Yeah. I mean, do something healthy. Yeah. 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 No, I love that so much because I really look, I, my, I had a very emotional relationship with food for the majority of my life. And to be at a place where I do not have an emotional relationship with food, I do not see myself as deprived. I see food as information. And what I'm constantly asking myself is what information am I giving my body? And am I giving my body the tools to support my health and well-being? Those are my questions now, not, oh, if I don't have dessert or if I don't have cake at my birthday, then I'm deprived. It's like, no, maybe I'll go for a weekend away or maybe I'll, you know, something else. It's like finding joy outside of food. And I'm really glad you said that because I think a lot of people can't fathom a life without X, whatever that X is. All right. One more. What causes restless leg syndrome and how can we fix it? The cause of restless leg syndrome is a high adrenaline output. Mm -hmm. It's very high adrenaline output, and it normally comes and it's in surges. So it's at the end of your day. It's very common this is happening at night. It's the end of the day. You've had a long day. You're working. You're whatever you're doing, and now you're 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 running out of steam. And so your body is saying, "But we still have to have enough adrenaline because we got to get to bed." Or you're already in bed, and you're you've kicked your adrenals so long, so fast. It's just like always slamming them, slamming them, slamming into gear, so they flinch. At every little thing. And those flinches are releases of adrenaline. And that's what's giving you the restless legs. It is not a lack of magnesium. It is not a lack of calcium. It is you are too stressed out. And what's the answer to that? You got to reduce your stress and quit eating things that's, that cause stress in the human body and cause these adrenaline pushes. It is your adrenal glands. It is all tied up in adrenaline. And you're basically have exhausted adrenals. You're too tired. And they're just sputtering. It's like a, a car. That's going an old jalopy, old time jalopies. We don't have cars like this. And it goes down the street and it's going pop, 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 and it backfires and it goes back and backfires. This is exactly what's happening in adrenal glands. And we just put too much stress on organs and are actually glands that can't handle that. And so then pay the back fresh, which is restless legs. What do you do when you have them? Would you eat your beans, eat your small little fiber? Beautiful. The fiber. And you just try to. Cut the stress, you know, mm-hmm. and usually it's with people who have stressful lives. Your thoughts on oxalates? Oxalates are very important. They're called anti-nutrients, but they're also nutrients at the same time. You see, we always focus on the negative of something. Well, you know, there, there's a negative to everything. I mean, you, you know, you have brown hair, where, you know, unique. There's a negative of that because you really wanted blonde hair, you know? <laughs> And so that's a negative because you don't like it or, you know, you have this color eye. There's always a negative downside to something. The oxalates have a lot of positive, positive things for them. They also, without oxalates, we're not going to have a lot of chemical reactions happen. But they can they be an anti-nutrient too? And so they are not bad. They're not to be demonized. And most people don't even understand 
that the oxalates that are always quotable, you know, beans are high in oxalates or, you know, anything that's grown from the ground is high in oxalate. But when we cook them, the oxalate level drops significantly. And so you're not getting these high levels that are recorded. They're so terribly high. Well, no one's going to eat a raw bean. I'm telling you, you can break your teeth off. You can't even chew them up. You know, they have to be cooked. And so we, it's, we're so focused on the wrong things. You know, we're running down these paths of the oxalates and, you know, we can demonize a lot of other things. I've already mentioned them to you because I bring up people's questions. But we're, <laughs> we're, we're focused on these wrong things. And it's just like, it's so simple. Focus on getting the sugar and the caffeine out of your life. Focus on de-stressing, you know, not being so upset about whatever your job or your finances. I don't, you know, everybody's got something on their plate. You know, focus on getting in your protein and your beans and, you know, getting a sufficient water. And then all these other things, they don't matter. You're focused on the minors and the minor things are not really impacting your health. And you're missing the boat with the major things. Yeah, focusing on the minors instead of the majors. I 100% agree with you. Gosh, she said something in there. It's a really interesting thing that people focus on this rhetoric around anti-nutrients are, have products to sell, first of all. They're not looking at like these whole foods, but you could also say that zinc is an anti-nutrient because it depletes copper if it's out of balance. And you could say that calcium is an anti-nutrient because it depletes iron, right? To me, what it seems is there's this beautiful poetry in our food, which is if you eat from the natural world, then you will get what you need. But if you're supplementing, then you're playing this game of, is it too much? Is it too little? Is it too much? Is it too little? Am I taking too much zinc? And if I'm taking this much zinc, how much copper do I need to take? And I feel like if you become a science experiment with your own health, which is way more detrimental than just eating a good rounded meal. I think we think that we need all of these extras so that we're doing the right thing. But in the end, you're just, you're playing a game of Russian roulette once again, because I have all these people come to me and they're taking high volumes of zinc. And I'm like, well, have you checked your copper lately? If you're taking all this zinc and, you know, it's kind of wild to me. Yeah running down the wrong path. That's what we've been doing, running down the wrong path. The minors, the minors. I like that. Let's play with the majors. Let's get out of the minors. Karen, you are amazing and wonderful and I adore you and thank you for being such a truth seeker because it, for me, what, re you know, not always in my mind because my mind can think lots of things, but I always know truth because it resonates in my heart and you are definitely a person that I come back to again and again as just a truth teller and I appreciate the road you have taken in life to be a truth teller. So thank you. Lori, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. Have a wonderful night. Okay, you too. I hope you enjoyed my Q&A with Karen Hurd. And if you are looking for more from Karen Hurd, you can go to her website at karenhurd.com. She offers a lot of wonderful information and courses. If you are looking to work with me or get coaching, you can go to yourgreat.com and I offer coaching packages and individual health consultations. Thank you so much for being here and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Have a wonderful day, night, wherever you are in this wonderful world.